0: Uh, Well, firstly, good evening, everybody. Thank you for coming out on this not entirely wonderful evening in terms of the weather. Firstly, let me introduce myself. My name is Professor Michael, or Mick Cox. I'm in the International Relations Department, and I'm one of the founding directors of a centre of foreign policy here at the LSE, uh, which is called uh, IDEAS. Uh, According to the Notes tonight, I'm also chair of LSE. That doesn't mean I'm the director, by the way, just in case you thought there'd been a coup d'etat against Craig Calhoun. <laughs> um, it's normal, normal to say welcome uh, to a speaker, uh, but in the case of uh, Ramachandra Guha, it's a question of welcome back. As you can see from the publicity material behind me, i a uh, Ram was the Philip Ramon Chair in History and International Affairs here at the LSE Ideas between 2011 to 2012. And uh, we've had some remarkably great uh, Philip Ramon Chairs here over the, over the years we've been running the chair. Uh, uh, but I have to say that Ram was certainly one of the very best. He was certainly the only one who knew what cricket was about, (laughs) which of course made him a very special person in my eyes. Uh, And indeed, in his many lectures and contributions when he was here uh, a couple of years ago, he ranged far and wide on many issues, including cricket, uh, the environment, uh, why India is uh, not a superpower and should not be, be one or become one. And he also talked uh, very eloquently in one memorable evening to his previous book, or one of his previous books, there are several of course, and I won't go through them all, called India After Gandhi, which was of course his 2007 prize-winning book, which which I think has become one of the standard histories of post-independence India since 1947. You'll notice the twist in the title here this evening, uh, not India after Gandhi, but Gandhi before India. A very neat title. And this evening we are, I think, privileged and I'm very happy to welcome Ramachandra Guha back to the LSE to speak to the title of his new book, Gandhi Before India. Ram, welcome back. And I wonder if you could give him a very nice LSE welcome.
1: Thank you, Mick. Uh, Thank you all. One of the things that I do not share with the subject of my book is that Gandhi had a profound indifference to the game of cricket. (laughs) He also was uh, rather unmusical, is not known to have appreciated a picture either a moving picture or a still picture, and there were other differences. I'm a mere writer who never changed anybody's life. I'm hopeless at keeping my vows. (laughs) But there is one thing I share with Gandhi, which might explain why I am so happy to be here today. Outside of my homeland, the one place I really like is the city of London. Uh, Gandhi spent some formative years here as a young man. I spent the happiest year of my life outside India at the LSE. Uh, Not least because uh, it had associations with Gandhi. The inner temple where he studied and had some dreadful vegetarian meals Uh, (laughs) is down the road. Uh, To have somewhat better food, he came to uh, one of London's first vegetarian restaurants, which was then in High Holborn. Uh, And the LSE was just a very special place to be in. To think about Gandhi, his connections to India, uh, a country with which this institution has uh, some great connections. Of course, Gandhi himself uh, was studying in London at the time before the LSE was uh, set up. So I'm really delighted and honored to be back at the LSE speaking on Gandhi before India. <coughs> in the years I've been working on this book, Uh, from both friends and enemies alike, I face two questions. And I'll just take those questions and give you my answers before getting onto the subject of Gandhi's life. The first question, why have I chosen to write the 500th or is it the 5000th biography of Gandhi? A perfectly legitimate question. Uh, No person uh, in modern history has been so written about. Not even Churchill. And those who write about Churchill are only English people and a few Americans. Whereas those those who write about Gandhi come from all nationalities of the world. So the first question, why have I chosen to write yet another book about Gandhi? Well, the answer to that is uh, I've had a lifelong interest in the man. Wherever I've gone in my professional career, he's followed me or stalked me. I started as a historian of the environment. And my first book, which was a study of a pioneering environmental protest movement called the Chipko Andolan, brought me face to face with some living Gandhians, some extraordinary living embodiments of the spirit and legacy of Gandhi. Uh, A spirit and legacy you will find cynically used, misused and abused every day in Indian political life, uh, but which lives on in some extraordinary activists, some of whom were these environmentalists I studied. Then I moved on to write a biography of a man who's fascin- who had fascinated me, a maverick anthropologist called Verrier Elvin, who had two first class degrees from Oxford uh, before coming out to India and becoming a spokesman of Adivasi or tribal people. And Elvin was a kind of rebellious son of Gandhi. He lived in Gandhi's ashram by living and talking to Gandhi. He shared his evangelical Christianity, got more interested in other religions and questions of interfaith dialogue. Because of Gandhi, he decided to live on in India. In fact, he was the first foreigner to be granted Indian nationality. But while living with tribal people, he became profoundly disenchanted with certain aspects of the Gandhian credo, in particular prohibition and celibacy. And I'll have something to say about celibacy later on. But Elwin was, uh, had a deep, intense, complicated, ambivalent relationship with Gandhi. So that furthered my interest in Gandhi, working with Elwin. Uh, Mick mentioned India after Gandhi, which is a history of uh, Indian politics and society since independence. And of course, that brings you face to face with many aspects of Gandhi's legacy. And uh, the major figures in the early history of the founding of the Indian nation, Patel, Nehru, Ambedkar, Raja Gopalachari, Kamala Devi, Chattopadhyay, all had, again, very long-standing, complicated, intimate, and not always comfortable relations with Gandhi. And I even wrote a book on cricket by Gandhi Figure. I never thought he would, uh, because uh, as I said, there is no record of his ever having played cricket or watched cricket. He appears in a novel, a rather inventive novel, written by the Anglo Dutch writer Ian Buruma, which has Gandhi playing cricket for his plebeian high school called the Kathiawar High School in Rajkot against the school of the Maharajas in the same town, which is called Rajkumar College. And Gandhi did study in Kathibar High, high, uh, high School. And the protagonist of Buruma's book, the great Kumashi Ranjit Singh Ji, he who never played a Christian stroke in his life, uh, <laughs> did study in the Rajkumar College. So in this novel, you have Gandhi bowling leg breaks and googlies to Ranjit Singh Ji. <laughs> but that's, that's a novelist license. In real life, Gandhi never played cricket, never watched cricket. But when I began to compile the index to my book, A Corner of a Foreign Field, which is a social history of cricket, I think there were 73 references to Gandhi. The major figure of that book was an, uh, an untouchable cricketer who conquered caste and social disability to become the greatest Indian speed bowler of his time, to get actually in real life to get many Maharajas out. And to become a considerable public figure on the basis of his cricketing achievements alone. And his rise from obscurity to public eminence was immeasurably helped by the social reform movement that Gandhi had enabled. Whereby talented untouchables could escape social stigma. My book also dealt with India-Pakistan relations and cricket, Hindu-Muslim rivalry and Gandhi had much to say. So even about a subject uh, uh, in which he had absolutely no interest at all you will find many references to Gandhi. There's a distinguished historian of Indian film in the audience. If she were to write a social history of Indian film, she, I'm sure she would find that although Gandhi, I think, watched one film in his life. Is that right? One film. That's, That's right. one. Gandhi watched one film in his life. Uh, you write a social history of Indian film and there'll be 30 or 40 references to Gandhi. So his influence was profound and uh, overwhelming in all aspects of Indian life and in my own career. So that's why I decided, finally, now that I've reached middle age, after 25 years of grappling with Gandhi, I'd better settle my for him. with him. So that's why I have written this first volume of what will be a two-volume study of Gandhi. The second question, equally legitimate. If there are indeed these 500 or 5,000 books about Gandhi, what new could I possibly say about this massively written-about figure? Well, the answer, surprisingly, is a great deal. And the reason for this (coughs) has to do uh, with the preferred methodology of Gandhi studies, or scholars who write on all aspects of Gandhi, including biographers. Gandhi was a prolific writer. (coughs) His first essays were published in the Journal of the Vegetarian Society of London. So they were crafted not far from here. Uh, so those of you young students here who are beginning to write your first essays uh, uh, for assessment and publication. Gandhi wrote his first essay somewhere in this vicinity. And they were the beginning of a massive corpus of work, right? Uh, books, articles, speeches, interviews, letters, that when compiled by the editorial team uh, in the 60s and 70s, 70s came to 90 volumes. Uh, after the project was completed, <coughs> the editors found scattered essays of, and letters by Gandhi. Uh, you know, the, the project itself took 40 years, from 58 to 94. In this time, other letters were discovered. So seven supplementary volumes were pu- published that made in 97. And since this, is a pre, this was a pre-internet age, to eight scholars, there was volume 98, which was index of subjects, and volume 99, which was index of persons. As, since Indians have an incurable love of symmetry, we invented the number zero, don't forget. A totally redundant redundant volume of individual prefaces to the 97 volumes was added. <laughs> so there are 100 volumes of Gandhi's collected works. And uh, I have them uh, because I started, my interest in Gandhi started in the 1980s. And, uh, you know, my wife graciously granted me a uh, gifted me a bookcase to host, house those 100 volumes. Those of you who don't have the shelf space, by the way, the books themselves cost only 5,000 rupees, which is about 60. The whole set is sold at a subsidized rate, so about 60 pounds. Uh, you need the shelf space, and the young people don't want or desire or believe in shelf space. You click a mouse and you'll get all the 100 volumes. I hopefully minus the book of prefaces, but at least the other uh, 99. Now... <laughs> because of the easy accessibility of everything that Gandhi wrote. And it's a hell of a lot. You know, uh, uh, an undergraduate student at the LSE in four years, even if he or she is utterly conscientious, uh, would for, uh, you just about probably read about 97 volumes, I would guess. And this is just one man. Uh, so most scholars of Gandhi have just relied on his collected works. because, And they've really <coughs> disregarded... Most other things. They've looked at these few secondary studies and so on, a few general histories of the period. But in my own research uh, as a historian, not just into Gandhi, but into other subjects, I learned very early on that if you're writing a biography, it's very important for you uh, to begin with your subject's writings, but not to end with them. It's absolutely crucial to view your subject from all angles possible. It may seem an elementary lesson, but it's neglected by many biographers. I mentioned Churchill. Churchill's great official biographer, Martin Gilbert, essentially in about eight or nine volumes, provides a connected summary and analysis of everything that Churchill wrote. Churchill wrote almost as much as Gandhi, probably more, I suppose. Uh, and, you know, so biographers are just... Uh, often depended on Churchill's words. Now, with Gandhi, this bias I think is extremely unfortunate, because he was an ex- extraordinarily interesting and controversial figure. The most remarkable thing about Gandhi is that 65 years after he is dead, many people still compulsively feel the need to criticize. him. <laughs> Left-wing activists in eastern India, the so-called Naxalites, demolish, be- decapitate statues of Gandhi, a man long dead. A prominent left-wing intellectual based in this city, uh, who's now in his 70s, he's one of the greatest minds of modern times. In 50 years, he wrote about every subject in the world except Gandhi. But now he's felt the need to write a 50,000-word attack on Gandhi. We still you something about Gandhi. Of course, they will admire him, revere him, despise him. And he's so alive and contentious, so long after he's gone. Which is why it's absolutely crucial for the biographer. And this is really the premise, uh, the justification, the raison d'etre of my book. This book uses many other sources than those emanating from Gandhi himself. For example, letters to Gandhi. The collected works reproduce every letter Gandhi wrote. But what were the letters to him? These exist. Uh, in a series of cupboards in his ashram in Ahmedabad. But you have to go to Ahmedabad, open the cupboards, look at them. (laughs) Right? Letters about Gandhi. These exist in other collections. Person, a friend of Gandhi writing about Gandhi to another friend. A rival of Gandhi writing about Gandhi to another rival. And there are huge numbers of letters about Gandhi because he was a considerable figure who was active in three, three continents and lived a long and very intense life government, police, and intelligence reports on Gandhi. The British Empire had superb intelligence gathering skills. And they had a 50-year long obsession with their most dangerous enemy, Mohandas Gandhi. So in South Africa, in India, in district and provincial archives, uh, in England, you will find all kinds of fascinating materials on Gandhi. Reflections, assessments, critiques from that birth of his political activism in about 1904, 1903, right till his death in 1948, you know, and the people writing about Gandhi range from superintendents of police uh, right up to the viceroy and even the prime minister, Churchill. Some of Churchill's most splendid, splendidly vituperative prose is about Gandhi. But you'll find also appreciations, you know, some British officials writing with wonder and astonishment about this man. So there are these government reports. Uh, And finally, they had newspaper accounts. The first report on Gandhi in a newspaper, so far, as I could tell, appeared in the Kathiawar Times of September 1888. Uh, uh, Duvishin got speed on his journey to London, because he was one of the first people from that part of India, the western coast, to go to London to study. So his first appearance is in an obscure (coughs) magazine called the Kathiawar Times. Last week I was in a great American university uh, spending a week and I, because I was there and not at home, I had access to something some of you in this room would have used called ProQuest, uh, which is a register of historical archives. And I typed New York Times 1920 to 1948 Gandhi and I got 9,500 references. And of course you do, if you do the Times of India you'll get 95,000 references. And the London Times will be in between. I mean, the British were not as obsessed as the Indians, uh, but more obsessed than the Americans about Gandhi. Right. So at not just great national newspapers, accounts wherever he went. <coughs> Gandhi was in London uh, for the last time in the last months of 1931. And he travelled all over. He went to Oxford, he went to Manchester, he went to Yorkshire, he went here and there. And if you look at the local newspapers, there will be interesting things about Gandhi. And for a biographer, when Gandhi goes to a small town in England, or a large city in India, such as Madras, or in South Africa, Durban, Johannesburg. What are people saying about him? What do they, how, how are they responding to him? Who comes to hear him? Who does not come to hear him? What slogans are uttered? What placards are held up? What are the editorials, somber editorials that, you know, the establishment writes about him? What are the corrective letters that people write in to dispute the editorial? I mean, it's astonishing, the range of materials that are there about Gandhi that can provide so many new, unusual, arresting perspectives on a man that go well beyond what he himself said. So there is materials on, about, around Gandhi, beyond the collected works, are scattered in archives all over the world, uh, in five continents. In the course of my research, I even found a rare collection of Gandhi letters and documents in the Israeli port town of Haifa. Uh, that's because one of his followers whom I'll come to was a, a, a Jewish person in South Africa whose descendants became Zionists and settled in Israel. So over the years, as I collected more and more material about Gandhi, I filled many fat notebooks uh, and I decided that one volume was not enough. I should do a two-volume study of Gandhi. And this book that I'm speaking about today, Gandhi Before India, uh, is the first of this series. And it deals with the period from Gandhi's birth in the town of Porbandar. He was born on the 2nd of October, 1869. And it deals from that period to July, from 1869 to July 1914, when he boards a ship from Cape Town to return to his homeland after more than two decades in the diaspora. This is more than half his life. When Gandhi returned to India in January 1915, he was 45 years old. He had 33 years left to go. It's more than half his span on earth, Yet it gets less than 20%, sometimes less than 10% of the attention in most biographies. People historically skip over it and they see it in teleological terms as determining the path and pattern of what he was to do elsewhere. And they don't really give it the attention it deserves. And Gandhi before India is a, a detailed, intense, close look at these first 45 years of Gandhi's life. And I'll just mark some of the major milestones in those first 45 years before I go on to some of the surprising or unusual findings of my book. My book begins in Gujarat, where he was born in Porbandar in 1869. His father was an official. This was a part of India controlled by, indirectly controlled by the British. It was ruled by Maharajas, or princes. So his father was Divan of Porbandar, that's chief minister of Porbandar. Then he moved to Rajkot, which was a bigger town in the hinterland, and he became Diwan or Chief Minister of Rajkot. So Gandhi moves to Rajkot when he's five and lives there till he graduates as a matriculate at the age of 19. And one of the important sources in in the early part of his life, which I won't say discovered, it existed from the 1960s, but it had escaped the attention of uh, all previous biographers, were Gandhi school mark sheets and attendance record. Now, this is a curious story. Gandhi studied, as I said, in a school called the Kathiawar High School, Kathiawar High School. It was later renamed King Alfred High School. And much later, it now bears the dignified name of the Mahatma Gandhi Memorial School. And there's a photograph in my book uh, of that school as it was and as it still is. A headmaster of this school in the 1960s in a spring cleaning operation stumbled upon Gandhi's mark sheets and attendance records in a cupboard. And he compiled them into a fascinating neglected book uh, that's published uh, by the Publications Division of India. Uh, And any book published by the Indian government uh, is at a price every Indian can afford and is so invisible that no Indian can get to see it. Uh, So I think I found it on the street in Dariya I certainly didn't buy it at a warehouse of the Publications Division of India. I found it on the street, took it home many years ago. And then the course of my Gandhi biography, I went through it. And it's fascinating. Because it tells you every term, uh, what subject he took, what was the curriculum, uh, what were the exam papers, particularly the matriculation, and what were his marks. Mm. And I discovered to my absolute joy and relief that Gandhi was consistently a second class student. (laughs) <laughs> not a third class student a second class student and I say joy and, uh, uh, because it's exciting for a historian to discover such facts relief because all through my career I was also a second class student not a third class student and certainly never a first class student so you get a sense of this mediocre man rather mediocre student I mean there's something to be said about being resolutely second class right uh, as a student <laughs> Uh, You can't even spectacularly. you can't even claim spectacular failure, right? Uh, Because you were inspired by poetry or art or music or something else, right? Anyway, so here is this man, although he's a second-class student, he's the first person in his family to actually graduate from high school. His brothers drop out and uh, he wants to study further. And he decides that he would like to study, go to England and become a barrister. Now his father had just died. Well, to add to the early biographical details, Gandhi gets married very young, as is the custom. Has a child at the age of 18. uh, Wants to study law. His father just dies. And his father almost certainly would have prohibited from coming to London. Because his father was an orthodox bania. Gandhi was born in an orthodox merchant caste, the banias. And there was a great fear among Baniyas and a horror at crossing the ocean, the kalapani. Because that led to your losing caste. Because the father was dead, Gandhi was able to persuade his mother uh, to allow him to fulfil his wish to study in London. And his mother uh, made him take these three vows, that he would not drink, Hmm. would not consume meat, because banyas are traditionally vegetarian, and he would not have sex with someone else who was not his wife, since his wife and child were being left behind. And as I indicated, unlike me, Gandhi was good at meeting his vows. But that's... uh, We can come back to that. So... uh, London in 1888. London in 1888 was a great imperial city, uh, home to, you know, people of many nationalities, many languages, at the height of its pomp. The British Empire was the height of its pomp. Uh, It's it's a period of very intense politics between the the liberals and the the conservatives. The Labour Party has not been born. The towering figures are Gladstone and Disraeli. Is also an active socialist movement. Karl Marx has just died, but of course his descendants, uh, his political descendants are active. Engels is still alive. And Gandhi, instead of becoming a liberal or a Tory or a socialist, throws in his lot with a much more obscure set of London dissenters, the Vegetarian Society. <laughs> and they give him a home that saves him, that rescues him from the anguish, the uncertainty, the loneliness, and the despair of being alone in a foreign country. The food is dreadful, as I said, in the inner temple, the landlady, has problems with the landlady, but the vegetarians say Till Gandhi comes to London, he's a vegetarian out of cultural conviction, uh, or cultural habit and tradition, because banyas have always been vegetarian. Uh, they've never known, uh, you know, meat has never entered the household. In England, London becomes a vegetarian out of intellectual conviction, or philosophical conviction. The man who ran the Vegetarian Society of London was a man called Henry Salt, who was an ethical vegetarian rather than a cultural one. I incidentally am a cultural vegetarian Uh, uh, and so is my family. But Gandhi then acquires this ethical conviction and the vegetarians of London give him, in a sense, a home away from home. His first friends, he sets up a household with an English vegetarian called Josiah Oldfield in Bayswater and the first chance to become a writer. Now, again, to the young writers in this room. I mean, just think, Gandhi's first writings are a six-part series. It's so hard to get a single article published. And for a writer to make his debut uh, through a six-part series, I mean, it's fantastic. Even if it be the Journal of the Vegetarian Society of London, (laughs) you'll take it. And it's here that he develops his first skills as a writer and as a propagandist. And he graduates with a law degree, goes back in, uh, uh, to Rajkot, law degree in hand, and having uh, kept the three vows he made to his mother. Goes back in 1891 to hear his mother has just died, so he can't tell her about his keeping his promises to her. He goes back to, uh, to his hometown Rajkot, wants to establish himself there. But his, young, his older brother, Lakshmi Das, who has got, just got into trouble... With the authorities, he was intriguing with the heir to the throne of uh, Porbandar. This is something that an episode that Gandhi just glosses over in his autobiography. That Gandhi's brother was intriguing, was involved in palace intrigue, and as part of it, he was an accomplice in a theft of the palace jewels by the ruler's grandson. And is caught, extern from the state, and the shame of this actually. Some of it also falls on Gandhi. Gandhi may have thought that with a law degree in hand, he could emulate his father by becoming a senior bureaucrat or the chief minister or the chief justice of a state in Kathiawar. But this is foreclosed by his brother's transgression. So he goes to Bombay, tries to establish himself as a lawyer, fails about this he writes with disarming frankness in his autobiography, that he goes every day he treks from the suburbs to the Bombay High Court, which is one of the great Gothic buildings in the city, Climbs its long-curving long, scaring, long curving staircase, looks for briefs, doesn't get them, and in the evening walks home. He also talks about nodding himself to sleep by listening to other lawyers in the courtroom. Uh, so, he fails to establish himself as a lawyer in Rajkot and in Bombay, and he is rescued from professional failure by an invitation from South Africa, where two Muslim merchants from his hometown, Purbandar are involved in a commercial dispute. They were cousins. It's a very, very Indian story. (laughs) Uh, They were cousins. They form a partnership. It would be even more Indian if they were brothers, but let that be. (laughs) Uh, So they were cousins who form a partnership, and they're extremely prosperous. You know, uh, uh, they have a chain of shops extending across the Transvaal, Natal, Mauritius, and then they fight. And uh, the elder of the cousins, the main man called Dada Abdullah, calls Gandhi to help him settle the dispute. The dispute has gone to the courts. It's being fought in the high court in Pretoria. But all their transactions between the two cousins are in Gujarati. And uh, the English lawyer the recruit does not know Gujarati, but they need a lawyer. Now, this is actually quite fascinating from a historian's point of view. This is the first phase of globalization. You know, the late, <laughs> it is. And this is not met, uh, meant uh, facetiously, it's absolutely true. I mean, the historian, the great historian C.A. Bailey, Bailey has a book called The Birth of the Modern, which describes this period as the first phase of globalization. In the, 90, in the 1790s, there would be no Indian merchants in South Africa. The Indian merchants went to South Africa because in the 1860s, a huge number of Indian laborers were shipped forcibly to South Africa to work in the sugar plantations. And to service the needs of the Indian laborers, Indian merchants followed. So in the 1790s, there would be no Indian merchants in South Africa. In the 1990s, they would have fought with each other in English. It's only in the 1890s that the dispute was in Gujarati, the court was in, court in the case was in, in English and you had a Gujarati lawyer who as part of the same first phase of globalization had come to London to get an English legal education. So that conjunctio, conjunction is very important. So Gandhi goes to <coughs> Natal and he stays on. He goes to resolve one court case and he stays on with interruptions, uh, which i will come to, one interruption for 20 years. In 1894, he gets active in politics uh, against the discrimination. He goes first to the province of Natal, which is where most of the Indians were. The Indians were on the east coast, uh, which is where the sugar plantations were. South Africa then was composed of four provinces, Natal and the Cape, which were British-controlled along the coast. And the hinterland, the Transvaal and the Orange Free State, which were controlled by the Afrikaners or the Dutch-speaking whites. So you had whites in control in two. Uh, provinces are another group of whites in control and the other two. Um, and Gandhi gets involved in Natal in safeguarding the rights of the Indians. Uh, there's a, and of course he attacks the ire. One of the striking uh, findings of my research was the, was the amount of hostility and animosity against Gandhi in the white press. Mm. There's a long account of a vicious attack on him at the point in Durban. In 1896, Gandhi goes back to get his wife and children to join him in South Africa. And uh, while he's away, uh, a pamphlet written by him on the grievances of the Indians is published. This really enrages the whites. Uh, you know, they're convinced that is coming back from India. Again, these are all parallels with the current phase of globalization, by the way. He's convinced that he's coming back from India with shiploads of immigrants, brown immigrants who are t- going to take white jobs, you know. And there's a series of articles and meetings saying this evil money-grubbing lawyer. There are also some brilliant satirical poems written about him. I mean, the first poems written about Gandhi were written in a journal called the Natal Advertiser by a white racist satirist in 1895, which are quoted in this book. And I won't quote them here. Uh, they're of historical interest. They may not be a poetic uh, uh, eloquence, but anyway. Uh, but they're, they're interesting. So you have all of this, and you have Gandhi coming back. And uh, uh, while he's away, there's this accumulation of hostility and anger against him. A series of meetings. And when he lands, he's viciously set upon by a white mob. And he'd been beaten to death. He was rescued. And these these facts are relevant to Gandhi's later evolution in politics. He was rescued by a white couple. The man being the superintendent of police who gets uh, a, a a posse of constables to save Gandhi's life. So he's active in politics as a young man but community politics, fighting for the Indians, not really for the Africans, fighting for the Indians against the racist laws of the British regime in Natal. And he's very successful as a lawyer, because he has a captive clientele, but also he's earnest and hardworking. Uh, And he becomes their representative and spokesman, which is why he attracts so much anger and animosity among the ruling whites. In 1901, the Boer War breaks out. Before that, in 1899, and Gandhi takes the sides of the British... ...because he feels that he, if he supports the British... ...the Indians would be uh, treated better... ...against the Afrikaners. Uh, then he comes back to India in 1901... ...abandoning his career because... ...and he, again he doesn't explain why he goes back... ...and I speculate there must be several reasons. His wife is homesick. Uh, he wants to give his children an English, uh, Indian education. And finally, there is a lingering desire... ...possibly a lingering desire to try his luck once more at the Bombay bar. So they come back for good. And this episode is described in the autobiography where, you know, the grateful Indians of Natal give a whole uh, basket of jewels in gratitude and Gandhi returns them. And of course, he has a fight with his wife because the wife says that, you know, I've worked as hard as you and my daughters-in-law may need them. They have four sons by this time and so on. But he goes back and spends a year in Bombay and again spectacularly fails to establish himself. Now these are parts of the narrative that are not commonly uh, you know, talked about. You know, how can you say that a great nationalist figure serially failed at the Bombay Bar, for example. Uh, but he fails. And he is rescued by an invitation, one more invitation from South Africa. The Boer War has ended and the problem for the Indians now is Transawar. Because when the Transvaal, as I explained, was dominated by the Afrikaners, and the Afrikaners, uh, uh, their racism was, uh, you know, much more ambiguous than that of the British. Not that the racism of the British was uh, did not deeply felt, but it was, you know, there was a patina of imperial benevolence maybe uh, uh, on top of it. And when the war broke out. The several thousand Indians in Johannesburg fled because they thought that the Afrikaners would treat them very badly. Uh, They go uh, to Natal and the Cape, and after the war has ended, they go back to rebuild their businesses. Now, after the war ends, there is a kind of historic compromise between the Afrikaners and the British. The cause of the war, uh, uh, essentially, was a dispute over gold. This will not surprise anyone who understands modern economic history. Uh, In the 1880s, a huge amount of gold was discovered in the Transvaal, not far from Johannesburg. And the British had the entrepreneurial skills, so they moved in and they benefited the most, not just from mining but from the side industries such as hotels and so on and so forth. In the 1890s, the British had the money they wanted a share of political power and the Afrikaners were determined to resist them because they'd fled the British into the interior to found their own colonies based on farming and herding, which were their special skills, and a group of money grabbing miners and entrepreneurs. That's how they saw the British. So they went to war, and after the war ended, there was a historic compromise which resulted in a union of Boer and Britain against the darker races. And it's in that context that Gandhi comes back to the Transvaal to uh, negotiate for the rights of Indians. In 1904-5, he uh, <coughs> tries to effect a compromise with the rulers, with Lord Bilner, who was the, uh, a major pre pre-coun- pre-consul, and to say that, look, uh, just give us, we don't want rights of citizenship, just give us rights to own property and to trade. This compromise is rejected, and then Gandhi starts a series of campaigns uh, which are first uh, petitions and protests, and then of course mass civil disobedience movements uh, uh, that uh, he perfects in the Transvaal. The idea of civil disobedience, so Satyagraha, as Gandhi was to call it later, was born on the 11th of September 1906 in a mass meeting of Indians in the Empire Theatre in Johannesburg. Mark the date, 11 September 1906, mm. 95 years before a more famous or more notorious 9-11, Uh, which of course was all about violence. Now, so non-violence, the idea of non-violent collective struggle, which is completely new as a political technique. Till then, Indians had either resorted to polite petitioning of the authorities in India or in South Africa or armed struggle. You know, there was already uh, uh, a group of uh, radicals in Bengal and Maharashtra who were trying to behead or throw bombs at British officials. So, Gandhi Rejects petition, polite petition, but he also rejects arms struggle and non-violent collective action. Gandhi's greatest and enduring legacy to the world is born in Johannesburg in 8, 9 when thousands of people caught arrest. Gandhi himself goes to prison four times, and then finally in 1914, after having uh, got some important of the demands of the Indians conceded not all, but the most important ones considered, Gandhi Returns to India. Uh, And that will be the subject of my next book. (coughs) I now want to return to the fundamental point I made in the beginning of my talk. That to deeply and properly understand Gandhi, you have to look at him from all angles. From his own, of course, and I certainly started with Gandhi's collected works. But I didn't end with them. So you look at him, his career, his journeys from his own angle, but also from the angle of his friends and followers and from the angle of his enemies and adversaries. (laughs) Now, if I take this book uh, and all the years i spent with Gandhi, I have learnt two or three, I think, major biographical lessons. One, I've already explained. Don't start with, don't end with, the, start with, but don't end with the writings of your main subject. The other lesson, which, is, which I want to illustrate a little bit here, and which is illustrated much more abundantly in my book, is that for a biography, it's very important to have a, your, your subject must be interesting, of course, but it's very absolutely crucial for there to be an equally interesting cast of supporting characters. And this book has a great deal about the secondary characters of South African, of Gandhi's South African years. Now, the secondary characters of Gandhi's Indian years are moderately well-known, extremely well-known in India, if not always uh, adequately understood, but their names are recognized. You know about Gandhi's great associates, Jawaharlal Nehru and Vallabhai Patel. And they're all over the Twitterverse right now, by the way, uh, because Indians are fighting about their legacy, uh, because... Uh, One party is claiming Patel and the other party is trying to reclaim Patel and so on. Uh, But you'll see this. Nehru, Patel, uh, the great Muslim scholar Moana Azad, the remarkable feminist Kamala Devi Chattopadhyay, who led really women in the national movement. These people are reasonably well known. You also know Gandhi's devotees, the English admiral's daughter Meera Madeleine Slade, who has more than a cameo role in Attenborough's book, for example. Uh, other people who worked alongside Gandhi. We also know quite a lot about his adversaries. Jinnah, the great leader of the Muslim League, and uh, B.R. Ambedkar, the equally great leader of India's untouchables, who argued with Gandhi, who debated with Gandhi, who had bitter political disputes with Gandhi, and whose disputes still resonate and echo down the decades. So whether it be Gandhi's political colleagues, his personal followers, or his uh, political rivals, the Indian rivals and the British rivals, Churchill, Lord Irwin, Mountbatten—you know about them. But the secondary characters of Gandhi's South African phase are forgotten or ignored, and they are equally fascinating and actually much more important in Gandhi's life because they entered his life and shaped his world, shaped his worldview and his politics at a time when he was a struggling, searching activist, not the Mahatma he later became. And I'll just say a little bit about some of these characters because, you know, my book is 600 pages, uh, lots lots more on them. But very quickly, I'll I'll, uh, divide this cast of secondary characters of Gandhi's South African phase into four categories. (coughs) First, they're the mentors. I mentioned Henry Salt, the founder of the London Vegetarian Society. Another very important mentor, largely forgotten now, is a Jain thinker called Rai Chand Bhai, who uh, really inspired Gandhi's move towards celibacy and a simple life. Then there is his Indian mentor, Gopal Krishna Gokhale, a great Indian social reformer of the early 20th century, who uh, inspired Gandhi both to attack the caste system and to forge an enduring compact between Hindus and Muslims, India's two great religious communities. And finally, his greatest mentor of all, whom he never met, the Russian writer Leo Tolstoy. Now, I said something about Gandhi's lack of interest in cricket and music and film and whatnot. Uh, it wasn't merely an offhand remark, though it was that too, I, I grant that. But you think of Tolstoy, who in many ways has gone the most profound influence on Gandhi. I have no record that Gandhi read War and Peace or Anna Karenina. <laughs> Yet he read minutely every word of every social or political tract that Tolstoy ever wrote. Tolstoy abandoned his career as the greatest novelist of Russia and the world to become a social and political propagandist. And that's what Gandhi read. He read his book, The Kingdom of God is Within You, which inspired Gandhi to cultivate his own approach to religious pluralism. Because he was inspired by Tolstoy, a successful novelist, to abandon his own career at the bar, successful career, in midlife, and to become a simple householder and peasant living off the land. Because Tolstoy became celibate, he became celibate too. Because Tolstoy was a vegetarian, he was convinced and confirmed in his own vegetarianism. And his theory of non-violent resistance was also inspired by Tolstoy's pacifism. And in my book, I describe this relationship as it evolved, over a period of fifteen years, Gandhi first read Tolstoy in eighteen ninety three. Uh, I was read and reread him, and in nineteen o nine in London, wrote his first letters to him. And they were partly the letters of a fan, of course, but they are also uh, the letters of a very confident fan. He's telling Tolstoy, "You are a pacifist. You told young Russians not to be conscripted into the Tsar's army in his bloody wars. I was inspired by your idea." To practice passive resistance, but what we have done in the Transvaal with your idea will have world historic significance. So he is rather conf- confident, practitioner of Tolstoy's method of non-violence. So there are Gandhi's mentors, then there are his followers, who are described at great length in this book. People like Parsi Rustamji, who was a Parsi merchant in Durban and the most steadfast and loyal financier and supporter of Gandhi. A Baptist priest called Joseph Dok, who gave Gandhi refuge after the second assassination attempt on his life, and also wrote the first biography of Gandhi. A Gujarati merchant called A.M. Kachalya, who revived the Gujarati part of the struggle, when the other Gujarati merchants, merchants are generally a cautious and conservative community. So they were willing to go to jail once, but not again and again. And Kachalya went to jail again and again. And when the Gujaratis failed him, apart from Kachalya, Gandhi's movement was sick by a remarkable man called Tambi Naidu who was a Tamil and furthered Gandhi's connection to the Tamils who were the most numerous element in the Indian diaspora and also the most impoverished. The Gujarati merchants were prosperous. And Tambi Naidu really really revived the movement so much so that Gandhi wanted to learn Tamil because to repay the debt he owed to Tambi Naidu, Unfortunately, Tamil is a bloody difficult language to learn. I've tried myself and failed. But anyway, uh, that continued. Tamir Naidu is a fascinating character, by the way. Four generations of his family were active in the freedom movement. His grandson, Indres, Na- the freedom movement in South Africa, not in India. His grandson, Indres Naidu, was in Robben Island with Nelson Mandela. Uh, anyway, so uh, they are the mentors. They are the followers. Then they are the friends. Uh, and these friends are fascinating. And they're fascinating in themselves, and fascinating, of course, to the biographer. They're fascinating in themselves, fascinating because of the impact they have on Gandhi, and fascinating because they're forgotten. And I just could to mention three people very quickly. I ten minutes? Very quickly, three or four people. One is an English couple, Henry and Millie Pollack. Uh, Henry was Jewish, Millie was Christian. They fell in love in this city, London. Uh, common enough occurrence. Uh, but threatening enough, since it's an inter relationship, threatening enough in 1903 for Pollack to be externed by his Jewish family to South Africa. Uh, where he goes uh, and does one thing or the other, and finally becomes a vegetarian, reads Tolstoy, meets Gandhi in a vegetarian restaurant, befriends him. And Gandhi encourages them to follow his love for Millie. Gandhi writes letters to Polak's father, uh, urging them to uh, let the two get married and saying in the beautiful climate of South Africa they will get along rather well. They are persuaded. uh, uh, And Millie comes out to join them on Christmas Day in 1905. And Gandhi wants to uh, be the witness to their marriage. And he does succeed. So this... Jewish and Christian couple are married with a Hindu witnessing the marriage as was required by South African law. And they move into the Gandhi household. Gandhi is already there with his wife, Kasturba and their four children. And they make a home. Now, this is Johannesburg in 1906. The most racist city in the most racist country in the world. (laughs) I am pretty sure that interracial mixed household would be inconceivable in London in 1906. Forget Bradford or, uh, you know, anywhere else, right? And it would be inconceivable in Bombay too. And yet in Johannesburg in 1906, there's this interracial household. And it's a fascinating story of, of uh, affection, engagement, love, and also argument and disputes. <coughs> Because the Polacks adore Gandhi, they admire his courage, but they also disagree with him. Millie Polack uh, is very really put off by Gandhi's Hindu patriarchal tendencies. And they argue about the place of women. Uh, not just in Hindu society, but in modern society. Millie encourages Kasturba to be more uh, assertive when it comes to the rights of not just herself, but the children. Polack, uh, you know, has no interest in religion. He's an atheist. So they argue with Gandhi about religion. Polak also is upset that Gandhi is teaching his children only Gujarati, saying tease them Gujarati, but English is the coming language of the world and tease them English too. So they have these fascinating arguments uh, about religion, about food, uh, about aesthetics. Uh, Millie Pollack wants to have some lovely curtains and Gandhi says, forget it. If you want to look at beauty, admire the sunshine, sunshine outside, you know, okay. Uh, then they argue about food, and then Millie Pollack says, you know, uh, that, you know, what kind of household this is, that you're only interested in what goes into your mouth, right? And, and, and so, and yet actually, admires Gandhi enormously, He said despite all this, look at this man. Look at the fact that at all times of day and night, the Indians streaming in to seek his counsel. So Millie and Henry Pollack uh, play a very important role in Gandhi's life. uh, One of the reasons they're written out of the Gandhi stories later on—they have a disagreement in the 1930s—but that will be the subject of volume two. But his English housemates are crucial, partly because uh, if you go back to uh, 1897 and the attack of the white mob, you know Gandhi recognizes that there's a distinction between racism as a political practice and the everyday—that the fact that you can still have friends across racial boundaries. So uh, there are Polacks, then there's a fascinating woman called Sonia Sleshin. also forgotten. She was Jewish and she becomes Gandhi's secretary. Uh, And she stays with Gandhi from 1904-5 right up to 1915 when he leaves. And hers is only a triple transgression. She is a woman working for a man. Uh, Sorry, she's a uh, uh, brown woman working, uh, a white woman working under a white man. She's a Jew taking the side of Hindus. And she's a member of the ruling race who identifies with people in jail. I mean, she sustains Gandhi. In fact, she wants to become a lawyer. She wants to become the first woman lawyer in South Africa, just as her friend Gandhi had been the first colored lawyer in South Africa. Gandhi encourages her. She passes the exams. But the Bar Association of South Africa says, forget it. We want no women. So, that, so she's remarkably intelligent. She still, still helps Gandhi, uh, you know, with uh, his cases. Gandhi relies on her to draft letters often, uh, you know, and to improve them. She argues with him uh, about celibacy, for example. There's some wonderful letters where she uh, wonders why Gandhi is so obsessed with celibacy. She teases him. Uh, she provokes him. And yet she identifies totally with the discriminated Indians of South Africa. When they are sent to jail, she goes on a cycle, this young Jewish woman in the most racist country in the world, city in the world, goes on a cycle from prison to prison, taking food and messages for the Indian prisoners in jail. You know, the Gujaratis, the Tamils, the Hindus, the Muslims, the Parsis. So an exceptional person, again, lastly, forgotten. And the last of Gandhi's great friends, a man called Pranjivan Mehta, uh, whom he meets in London, and whom I describe in my book, as the Engels to Gandhi's Marx, <laughs> And I sustain and defend that comparison with one caveat. While the name of Engels is known to every serious scholar of and say, every serious critic of Marxism, and there are many biographies written about Engels himself, Pranjivan Mehta is totally forgotten. Yet he is the Engels to Gandhi's Marx. And what do I mean by this comparison? He is Gandhi's closest and oldest friend. They meet in London as fellow students in 1889. They stay in touch continuously. Pranjivan Mehta uh, qualifies as a doctor and as a barrister, but joins the family jewelry business and runs it out of Rangoon, where he also starts the first political association in Rangoon, which later inspires the Burmese to start their own political associations. And Gandhi visits Mehta in Rangoon, Mehta visits Gandhi in Durban. They meet several times in London. Gandhi is in London in 1906 and 1909, lobbying for the rights of Indians with the imperial authorities. Mehta is here then too. As they correspond regularly, several times a week. Gandhi's side of the correspondence is in the collected works, but unfortunately scholars haven't looked at it, even though it's there. Mehta's side of the correspondence is in unpublished Gujarati letters, uh, which um, I, was, uh, I was able to get a Gujarati friend to translate for me. So, he's Gandhi's closest and oldest friend, Justice Engels, was Marx's closest and Engels' friend. Uh, 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 Marx's closest and oldest friend. He is Gandhi's most steadfast and uh, steady patron, financial backer. Marx was saved from penury because of the subsidies that Engels gave him. I mean, Engels was the son of a rich textile-making family. I mean, Engels did many more things for Marx than just writing him checks. For example, he even assumed uh, paternity of an illegitimate son of Marx. And the loyalty of uh, Mehta, though it didn't extend to the last since Gandhi kept his vows, remember, Uh, uh, was of the same order. So he funded Gandhi. He kept on... He funded his journal, he underwrote the publication of Joseph Doak's biography of Gandhi. He paid for it to be distributed everywhere. Uh, The the correspondence between Gandhi and Tolstoy was translated by him in several languages, printed and distributed. Uh, He sent Gandhi's associates uh, to, uh, to England to study. And again, like Engels and Marx, Pranjeevan Mehta was the first man to recognize and proclaim Gandhi's greatness. Well, before anyone else recognized it. One of the things I document in my book is that Pranjivan Mehta first called Gandhi the Mahatma. It's commonly believed that it was Tagore in 1919. It was pranjeevan Mehta in 1909. And the book, Hind Swaraj, is actually based on debates between Gandhi and Mehta that occurred in the Westminster Paris Hotel in London. So Pranjivan Mehta is an absolutely fascinating and important character. Now, I have not supposed to say and I want to end and take questions I'll just say one last thing about my book and the secondary characters uh, it has more fascinating people than I've mentioned and also has a detailed discussion of Gandhi's where Gandhi failed in his personal relationships which is, which is in, the, in the sphere of his marriage which I've already briefly talked about and particularly with regard to his two eldest sons <clears throat> and this is really it's a long and anguished and rather tragic story Gandhi had his first son when he was 18, which is common at that time, but very rare and unusual in the modern world. For example, I had my first children when I was in my 30s, and that would be the experience of most parents in this room. Uh, Now, What this meant was that when Gandhi was having his midlife crisis, his son was having his adolescent crisis. Uh, In his mid-30s, Gandhi was exchanging a successful a profitable career in the law for a life of penury as a struggling social activist. And at this moment, his son Harilal wanted to educate himself and go to London and qualify as a barrister and his father refused to allow him. His father said, the time for sacrifice and suffering has come. You go to jail. (laughs) And Harilal, being not just a loyal uh, son but a courageous Indian, goes to jail again and again. He courts arrest eight times. And one of the joys of my research was to find in the Pretoria archives Harilal's fingerprints much as a prisoner. So he goes to jail, but he says, I still want to study. And Gandhi says, sorry. That's one uh, root of their misunderstanding. A second has to do with love and companionship. Harilal joins the family late because he's studying in, in, uh, uh, in, in Gujarat. At the age of 15, he falls in love with his neighbor's daughter, a common enough occurrence. Uh, Uh, and wants to marry her. Gandhi says, no, because in India of that time, you know, parents chose your bride. But Gandhi, Harilal persists, gets married, comes with his wife. Gandhi accepts the wife. But then the wife goes back to India with a small child and Harilal wants to accompany the wife on this perilous four-month journey across the ocean. And Gandhi says, no, your job is to go to jail. Somebody else will accompany Chanchi and the baby. (laughs) And then it continues that Harilal finally... after some time, he's so angry, he goes. He fights with his father, goes. And then, of course, sermons followed by uh, whatever was the equivalent of speed post then, including the importance of brahmacharya or celibacy, and not having sex with your wife, and so on and so forth. And it's a very tormented, complicated relationship, which evolves in South Africa. So I think uh, he is the great casualty, Harilal, who then you know, breaks down later on. His wife dies. That is all will be, be part of volume two. Also the second son, Manilal. When Harilal fails, Gandhi tells Manilal, you will be the perfect Satyagrahi and the perfect Brahmachari. <laughs> so these extraordinary expectations that Gandhi has of his children deeply damage them. I mean, it's, uh, and I think that's also part of the Gandhi story that is explored in this book. Now, the importance of these secondary characters in Gandhi's South African phase, these fascinating but sadly forgotten characters, is that it's their relationships with Gandhi that shaped his life, his views, his struggles. It's through them, through his encounters and experiences and friendships and even uh, differences. I also talk about Gandhi's South African adversaries and I have a long section on his relationship Uh, with the great Boer war hero hero John Christian Smuts, who was his major political adversary. But it's through his friendships and rivalries in South Africa uh, that Gandhi's views and struggles and political and moral philosophy emerge. It's through these relationships that Gandhi emerges as a religious pluralist who builds bridges between people of different faiths, as a true Indian, recognizing the diversity of his homeland, if Gandhi had succeeded at the bar in Bombay, he would have only had middle-class clients, 90% of whom would have spoken Gujarati. It's only in South Africa that he's exposed to 90% of who have spoken Gujarati and 95% of whom would have been Hindu. It's in South Africa that he meets and befriends Indian Muslims working-class Indians and Tamils and Hindi speakers in Bengali. So he only understands the heterogeneity and diversity of India, the social, cultural, linguistic, and religious by living in the diaspora. It's through South African years that Gandhi is sensitized to the rights of women and slowly moves towards a more deeper understanding of uh, the role of women in patriarchal South Asian society. It's in South Africa that Gandhi emerges as a person of rare moral courage, who is able to take on these assassination attempts, and it's in South Africa, above all, that Gandhi theorizes and practices non-violent civil disobedience, civil disobedience which is his most uh, and greatest and most enduring legacy to India and the world. So, my book, Gandhi Before India, is about the heroism of Gandhi, but also about his eccentricities and deficiencies. I mean, you not all of you will be uh, as willing to follow vegetarianism and celibacy after you read my account of Gandhi's struggles. <laughs> and of course uh, uh, many of you will sympathize with Lal and Kasurba in their encounters with him. Now I have th- five minutes, three minutes? Three yeah. three, okay, okay. I now I just want to end with uh, some tantalizing ifs to underline uh, the role of chance and contingency in history. The ifs of Gandhi's life if Gandhi's father had been alive in 1888, he would have never gone to London or qualified as a, bar- as a barrister. If Gandhi's brother had not been uh, involved in a palace break-in, Gandhi may never have left Gujarat for South Africa. If Gandhi had succeeded as a lawyer in Bombay in 1892 or again in 1902, he would have never matured as a political activist. When I first visited South Africa, almost 20 years ago, on a private visit, I've been back many times later on research visits, but when I first visited, not long after the coming of democracy, proper democracy of Africa, I said something about Gandhi and my interest in Gandhi. Several South African friends uh, in more than one city told me, you gave us a lawyer, we gave you back a Mahatma. (laughs) You gave us a lawyer. So we gave you back our Mahatma and that really is, sums up the story of this book. Thank you. Very smart. Very smart.
2: I'll,
0: I'll, I'll now advertise the book uh, promiscuously and uh, for those of you who can, uh, want to buy it please buy it at the end of the lecture and then come up here and uh, Ram will uh, sign it uh, for you. I'm glad you ended up on the what might have been of history. Perhaps the conclusion i draw from your lecture is we need more failed lawyers <laughs> in the world. Perhaps we've had so many successful ones over the last few years, and that's why we're in the mess we're in. <laughs> Two questions for me to start the discussion moving along. Uh, firstly, on Gandhi's attitude towards the British Empire. Uh, I, I have only read certain things on this, yeah. uh, but I'd just like you to reflect on that a bit more. I mean, clearly he came again for the British in the Boer War. Yeah. Um, later, of course, he is identified as an anti-imperialist or anti-colonial, yeah. anti-colonialist. But uh, my feeling is that his, rela- his attitude towards the British Empire was, was at this stage rather ambiguous. Uh, for, for, for reasons I'd like you to expound on. The second thing is, and I, I in, having come from this city, although I've not lived in it for many years except for the last ten, uh, many of my old political friends and comrades uh, were South African uh, from the struggle against apartheid over many, many years. And some of them were quite critical of Gandhi on one issue, namely that he was essentially communitarian yeah. in terms of his attitude Towards the struggles in South Africa. In other words, he was obviously deeply interested in the problems of the Gujarati communities, the Tamils, those of Indian descent, yes. one form or another. But took very little interest in the wider struggle for emancipation, particularly of black Africans. So,
1: one if you could start off on those two. Those questions. are, Thanks. Those, those are great then questions. We'll open up A? Q&A, yeah? Those are great questions, Mick. Uh, uh, on uh, your question. About both, but i think uh, uh, i think I, one used to amplify and contextualize sure, please he was uh, yes he was ambivalent about imperialism gandhi at this stage believed in uh, what his mentor gokhale had called imperial citizenship hmm. uh, that every part of the empire would be free uh, in terms of entry and exit and employment opportunities and of course the franchise uh, for all citizens of the empire regardless of where they came from so one of Gandhi's mentors was the first Asian MP in the British Parliament, Dada Bhai Naoroji, mm-hmm. who had been elected, uh, yeah, right, yeah. of course, against great opposition by the Tories, but he won. Mm-hmm. And Gandhi thought, likewise in South Africa and in India, you would have a system where racial uh, discrimination wouldn't count, everyone would be uh, an equal citizen. India, like South Africa and like Canada and New Zealand, would become a kind of self-governing dominion, uh, and they would say God save the king or the queen or whatever, uh, but... So he had a kind of somewhat naive faith in the idea of imperial citizenship. There is a famous proclamation of Queen Victoria of 1858 after the Great Revolt of 1857, which assures this, that in my empire no one will be discriminated on any grounds on the basis of color. And Gandhi believed in this idea of imperial citizenship. Though he evolved, he criticized specific practices, specific policies, Hmm. but he was an imperial citizen till 1919, which will be the subject of... Volume 2. Well, after the Jalal Walabag massacre in Amritsar, particularly, mm. he turns a critic of the British Empire. And it's even his great mentor, Rabindranath Tagore, it's after that, empire, uh, that massacre that he returns his knighthood, for example. Mm. All right. Mm. So that's true. Uh, though, of course, he wants an expansive, generous definition of imperial citizenship, not the kind that is practiced in South Africa, one that would allow Dada Bai to become an MP even in a white country. Or Gandhi and the Africans, that's a fascinating story. My book had a long epilogue, uh, which I removed because it's, you know, it's a fat enough book anyway, uh, which is called Gandhi's African Afterlives. Mm. Uh, and I hope to use that you know somewhere else, uh, uh, perhaps. And it's true, he was a community leader, but his understanding of the African predicament gradually evolved in the years he was in South Africa. He goes in 1893 as a man sharing the prejudices of an educated Indian. Europeans are very civilized. The Indians were once civilized, are now suppressed, will come back to the level of the Europeans. The Africans will need a lot of hard work to civilize them. Right. That's how he started. But slowly he evolved. He stopped using the pejorative term kafirs. He stopped calling them uncivilized. Un- un- In his journal, Indian Opinion, he writes often about the discrimination faced by Africans, documents, specific practices, pleads against them. Says, every community must work out its own Place in the sun, the Africans are discriminated, they must fight against the British, just as we must, and they could learn non-violence from us. Now it's important at this stage to uh, recognize that African political organization was massively scanty on the ground. In Natal, there was no African organization, it was there in the Cape, which is why the whites in uh, Natal feared Gandhi so much. He continues to evolve. Uh, a near neighbor of his in, in Natal was the African leader John Dupe, who was the first president of the African National Congress. The African National Congress itself takes its name from the Natal Indian Congress. So there's a clear influence. Mm-hmm. The prime mover of the Natal Indian, of the African National Congress was a barrister educated in America called Pixley Seme, who comes and visits Gandhi and his ashram and sees how Indians of different religions and castes are actually bonding together and says, we must do the same for the Africans. We must unite them regardless of tribes. So there's some fascinating things going on. Mm-hmm. And of course, after he leaves, he becomes more and more universalist. In the 30s and 40s, he consistently writes in favor of a joint struggle of Indians and blacks and coloreds against South Africans. Uh, uh, The African National Congress is greatly inspired by him. It Mm -hmm. sticks to nonviolence. I mean, its major leaders, such as Albert Luthuli are Gandhians. Mm -hmm. Mandela himself uh, is deeply, uh, very, very close in the 1950s to some of Gandhi, the sons of Gandhi's associates, Kachalya, whom I mentioned. Mm Gandhi is very close, Mandela is very close to both sons. And the main break comes in the in 1961 uh, when, of course, the ANC adopts violence. So. It's a somewhat anachronistic criticism. Uh, uh, and it's fair, but uh, to say he, of course he was a community. That, that, was, that was, what he was what he was. But he, even in his period in South Africa, he evolved towards a deeper nuanced understanding of the African predicament. And after he goes back to India, uh, of course he uh, expands even more. And his legacy is, is used. The 1952 defiance campaign, which is the first major struggle against apartheid, in which Mandela goes to jail, is inspired by Gandhian methods, you know, uh, for example. And if you go to South Africa, today and you talk to ordinary people uh, you know not to intellectuals uh, uh, they see Gandhi as what he was an important leader of the second rank in the South African freedom struggle not what he is to us mm-hmm. uh, but in, the, in South Africa there is Mandela Tambo, Ruth First, Joe Slovo Steve Biko and somebody the second rank Gandhi is also one of them so I think that's a, that's a correct assessment
0: ok that's yeah. great thanks so much. ok uh, questions anybody coming from yep, yep, if you could chap over here anybody at the back here Over here, if you could bring it down. I'll take two at a time, if I could. Yeah, gentlemen, uh, uh, thank you for your... Could you just give that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, First, please, yeah. Uh, Thank you for your lecture. It was very interesting.
1: Uh, I I just had a question. Why why didn't a great man like Gandhi make it as a Mumbai lawyer? Um, I mean, was it a closed shop, or was it dominated by one...
0: Um, community, or you know, mm-hmm. why, as yeah. an out, was he an outsider? Or? He didn't Good. do his law degree at the LSC, maybe. <laughs> 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 the LSC did <laughs> <laughs> a there. Well, Yeah, sir. Uh, yeah, sorry. Uh, thank you very much for a very interesting lecture. You talked
1: about Gandhi coming to England in 1909 and again. So is there any evidence you found that he met Sawarka, who was, of course, for the yes. RSS? Yes and India House, which was the terrorist type group. Thank you. Is that actually based yeah. in fact? Or yeah. Yeah. Thank you.
0: Perhaps you yeah. could expand on that because I yeah. think I a lot of people... Yeah. Okay. I, take
2: I, I, first,
1: why did he fail yeah. as a lawyer? Was well, it- uh, <laughs> partly social networks. You know, uh, and partly he was a lousy speaker. <laughs> right. And I talk about in the book how what an indifferent speaker he is, right? That's he was intelligent. If you ever had tried, he had radio recordings and you'll see what a lousy speaker he was. He mumbled, he was indistinct. And the, you know, with the Parsis and Gujaratis and their eloquence, especially the Parsis and of course he liked the social networks but he went, goes back in 1902 firstly he comes to a princely state so he doesn't have connections in Bombay. Where he goes back in 1902 people have already been there 10 years with you know established in the bar. If he'd stayed in 19 stayed on and persisted and taken elocution classes and <laughs> become a networker he might have succeeded. Right. But I think that's, that's part of it. Uh, On your question, is fascinating. Uh, the gentleman mentioned uh, someone called Savarkar. Hmm. He's an important figure in my book, and I have discovered lots of new evidence. Essentially, uh, Savarkar uh, was a young militant Indian from the western state of Maharashtra. He comes to London to study. In London at this time is an organization called India House for Indian Students, uh, the published journal, the mentor or the uh, the, the fountainhead or, or the father figure of India House is also a man from Kathiawar called Shamoji Krishna Varma, uh, who has a lot of money and uh, gives it for Indian students. Gandhi meets the India House people in 1906, uh, likes them, argues with them. He comes back in 1909. In 1909, Gandhi lands in July, and stays four months in in India. Just before he lands. A retired English official called Curzon Wiley goes to India House for a reception and is assassinated by a young student. And the young student is jailed, and there's not a lot of murmuring around the Indian students, and most of them secretly admire him. You know, it's, it's actually very, you know, it's kind of, they admire him, of course, they're too scared to say so in public. They want to get their degrees and go back and so on, right? Uh, but Gandhi's appalled by this exaltation of violence. That someone has come out as a guest to your reception, you kill him. The assassin was a man called Madan Lal Dhingra. By this time, Krishna Varma, the ideological inspiration, who is of Gandhi's generation, has uh, has decamped to Paris. So, but Dingra is arrested, convicted. Savarkar gets his conviction out, uh, confession out, and I believe, and I've documented in my book, probably doctors it and makes it more radical than it was. Or oh, invokes Hindu gods, which Dhingra did. And Gandhi built Savarkar. They, on Vijaya Dashmi, which is the day of victory, a great, the, the culmination of the Dasara festival, Gandhi and Savarkar share a platform in an Indian community gathering. And to buttress the point I made, a young man who was present there, who's quoted in this book, uh, later Indian nationalist called Asaf Ali. Here's Gandhi and Savarkar and says what a lousy orator Gandhi was compared to Savarkar. <laughs> because Savarkar was all fire and brimstone and take on, you know, the forces of e- good will conquer them with evil, just as Ram beheaded Ramayana with all the allusions clear, and Gandhi is talking about respect, dialogue, moderation, non-violence. And Hind Swaraj, which is written on the ship immediately afterwards, is a product of this ferment. So there's a chapter in my book about all of this, and you'll find some Fascinating materials, not as it happened when I wrote, I wrote the book as a historian, uh, but not ir- irrelevant to current Indian politics today, because two days ago a leading Indian po- politician got his sets, got all his facts wrong about Chamuji Krishna Varma, and confused him with somebody else, and so on and so forth so it 's all fun for a historian to see all this happening, but uh, absolutely, so the, the distinction was two, twofold: they met each other, they argued the distinction was armed struggle versus nonviolence. And how much of a religious idiom or a Hindu religious idiom do you get into politics? The, and the early roots, of course, they become much more intense later and are played out in India in the 1930s and 40s. And the man who killed Gandhi, Nathuram Gotse, was inspired by Savarkar. But anyway, the roots of this are, are in this book. Yeah. No, yeah. Thanks, great. There's yeah. uh, a uh, gentleman here on the balcony.
0: and if, are, you, are you with us? Good. And there's a chap over here waving his hand. Keep waving your hand, mm-hmm. good. In the back. Good. Yeah, over there. Just go. Yeah, pass it down. Yep. Hi. Right. Thanks for your Secretary. generous uh, summation of your book. I think you laid out very well. Oh, sorry, over here. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, I, I can I, see you. I, yeah. You, you laid out very well. I think a couple of things that have defined Gandhi's um, image uh, that we have of him: his nonviolence um, and his ecumenical attitudes towards religion and other peoples. I guess a couple other things um, that that very much defined his, his image today, uh, is his distinctive economic views yeah. and his incredible uh, adoration for the countryside. Uh, yeah. I yeah. guess in light of the fact that he adopted, initially, a very urbane and urban career. Yeah. He lived in great yeah. cities around the world and yeah. other sure. places, yeah. etc. Is that in his in his is that in your next book or sure, sure, are there okay. roots of <laughs> yeah, some yeah, of his yeah. uh, anti-urbanism and sure, um, sure, yeah. economical yeah, yeah, views yeah, in, yeah. from South Africa? Yeah. Thank you. Great. And the gentleman now. Yeah.
1: Me. Um, previously, we spoke just very briefly, and one of the questions I I had put to you was: uh, you should take a more counterfactual aspect to Gandhi. And this is exactly what you've done. When I first saw your title, I thought I understood. But having come here and right then before, no, I didn't understand. All
0: right,
1: okay. So I'm just uh, thinking in my head, is your title going to be uh, uh, India After Gandhi?
2: Okay. Be- be-
0: because this is quite um, common in British... Um, advertising, but my, uh, uh, but my point is this, yeah,
2: yeah.
0: I see a lot of people,
1: and I can see a lot of uh, some Chinese and some uh, Muslims, Yeah, they want some sort of, rel- what is the relevance okay, okay. in a modern yeah, te- context. Yeah, te- te- right, okay. uh, Very quickly, yes, the roots of this are in this book. You know, uh, I talk about Gandhi's early, the development of his early anti-industrialism, and how although he was city-bred and city-reared. Uh, he read Ruskin and Tolstoy and started a rural community experiment with working on the land. are some early environmental implications also that are developed here, but of course it becomes much more rigorous later. But they, I do talk about this in this book. Uh, your point, your second point, you know, one of the things in this book is Gandhi's relationship with the Chinese people. Uh, the Asiatic laws of the Transvaal also discriminated against the Chinese, because it was an anti-Asiatic law. And the whites were as paranoid about the Chinese as they were of the Indians. Again, many contemporary resonances, if you will. And Gandhi makes common cause with them. It was fascinating to discover this. This is, again, largely unknown, that in the satyagraha, or the passive resistance, many Chinese people went to jail. And the first agreement between the white regime and the resistors, which resulted in a compromise, was signed by three people. Gandhi representing the Gujaratis. Tambi Naidu, whom I've mentioned, representing the Tamils, and Leon Quinn, a Cantonese mineral water maker in Transvaal, representing the Chinese. And there's a lovely photograph of Leon Quinn in my book. He's a fascinating secondary character. He was active. He went to jail. Then he is deported. Many Indians in an attempt to stop the protests... About 60 or 80 makers are deported to India. Leon Qing washes up via Columba into Madras and makes a speech, which I found a rec- record of in 1910 in Madras, talking about Asian solidarity, right? Now, it's fascinating. So these Chinese residences are very, very interesting. So there was an Indian, Chinese, and of course, today you had to just talk about Nonviolence violence in China. The, the Chinese dissident Liu Xiaobao, uh, you know, it is collection recent collection of essays in English mentions Gandhi several times, without, of course, uh, knowing, and he has no reason to know this deep historical connection that in 1978, 9, the Indians and the Chinese were together fighting racial discrimination in in Transvaal. Yeah. What,
2: what
0: about the contemporary relevance, though? Just go back to that that, that broader <laughs> point. Why why bother with
1: Gandhi today? Is it because? Yeah. Uh, well, you know, uh, if I live long enough, uh, Nick, uh, I'd I'll, 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 I'll like to write volume three, which is on that. Uh, so volume two is India, South Africa, India, and the world. But so very briefly, very briefly, very brief. I, I, there, I, I, I may not live long enough. But two, three or four things. I think one is interfaith negotiation. You know, we live in a world dominated by eight fundamentalist atheists on the one side, and fundamentalist, fundamentalists on the other side. And I think Gandhi gives you a very interesting perspective, that he respects other people's faith, he opposes conversion, he talks, and it's, it's a complicated story, There there's some fine recent books by political scientists on it. But I think Gandhi gives you a sense of that. The second is, of course, nonviolence, which has been used, all, especially in resistance to unjust authority in your own state. And this has been used in you know, Asia and Africa and Eastern Europe, Western Europe, and so on. A third thing would be his precocious environmentalism, and that's again a subject hmm. which interests me. And the last thing, uh, fourth thing, would be you know transparency. I mean, the, the reason Gandhi was murdered, you could walk into his ashram and kill him. The reason uh, you know uh, you could debate with Gandhi is he wrote something and he, you argued with him. He reprinted your rebuttal in his own magazine. So from those 90 volumes of collected... And then he added his own gloss. From so the 90 volumes of those collected works, you can, you know, say all you want against Gandhi too. So I think that this... Un, so there are many ways in which Gandhi is relevant. Mm. I don't think it's the only person who's relevant. And my book is about the African Gandhi. It'll be followed by a book about Gandhi in India, 1915-1948. And it's for each one of you here to tease out his relevance, if, if at all he's relevant. Yeah.
0: yeah. I've got three last questions. I'm going to take the lady here first.
1: Yeah, um, I,
2: I had one question... About uh, Millie, Millie's in effect Millie, on yeah. uh, yeah. Kasturupa, yeah. how lasting were they, how significant were they. Yeah. And my other question relates to your opening remarks about how much, you talked about his friends and mentors. Yeah. But you also talked about the level of animosity that he still continues to evoke. Yeah. And I wondered if you could explain that.
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm picking people up. The gentleman here. Yeah. Thanks
1: for a lovely lecture. Uh, you mentioned that he was in Bombay in 1902. Is there any evidence of meeting Jinnah at that time, who yeah. I presume was practising? Yeah, thank you. Bombay,
0: okay, if you could you. pass that along to the gentleman here, please. Yeah, the gentleman there. And there's somebody at the back there? That lady at the back, you know. There's a lady at the back. I keep, you keep yeah. talking about a lady at the back. Yeah. Oh, there you are. Um, yeah. The gentleman here, then a lady at the back. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Thanks. And yep. The so, title
2: of your book is called Gandhi Before India. Yes. And therefore, uh, and we know from. I've got your book, I haven't got around to reading it yet. Yeah. But uh, we know that it covers the period up to the time that he returns to India. Now, if I may just. I mean, and what has been uh, written about your book uh, tells us that um, he was already form, forming a critical view of India uh, when he came back. Yeah. And he was looking, on, looking at India with a very uh, critical perspective, from a critical perspective. And I want to uh, quote yeah. a, a passage from um, uh, Naipaul's um, An Area of Darkness mm. where he said this, that this is about... Um, Uh, Gandhi, returning to India, he looked at India as no Indian was able to, his vision was direct and this directness was and is revolutionary. He sees exactly what the visitor sees. He does not ignore the obvious. He sees the beggars and the shameless pundits and the filth. He sees the atrocious sanitary habits of doctors, (laughs) lawyers, and journalists. He sees the Indian callousness, the Indian refusal to see. No Indian attitude escapes him. No Indian problem. He looks down to the roots of the static decayed society. And so that is how he saw it then. And it was according to Naipaul's assessment because he had transformed himself into a colonial uh, in uh, indian
0: okay so. I thought there was a second volume coming there. <laughs> uh, and uh, thank you for that. Uh, excellent quote from Naipaul. And the lady at the back there, this will have to be the last one, please.
2: Thank you very much. Um, just my question is, uh, the secondary character seems to be playing a very, very important role in your book.
0: a loudly. A bit louder, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so
2: the secondary character seems to be playing a very, very important, char- uh, important part in your book. So do you think that because of the mentors, followers and the friends that he had had, it's because of that makes him Gandhi today?
1: That makes him Gandhi today. Yeah. Okay. That's it. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. I mean, and that's, that's uh, you. And that's really what the book is about. I mean, how he's shaped by these relationships. I think, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, it's. Uh absolutely ridiculous and presumptuous of a historian to claim that he's more sensitive than a novelist. Uh, but, you know, Naipaul just takes a fact for granted. Gandhi is different. But why is he different? What shapes him? What are the relationships, uh, you know, debates and, and encounters? And that's really what the friends, mentors and uh, disciples do. So that's really uh, uh, in a sense the, the core of the book. Uh, so and since we talk about relationships, there were two questions about relationships. Uh, they're both, uh, I'll, uh, maybe I'll come back to Millie and Kasturba because it's more interesting historically. No, maybe both are interesting. So let, let me start with Milian Kasturba. You know, uh, um, what was uh, the impact? Part of it has to be inferred and speculated. We know, we have Millian's writings which are very interesting. We don't have Kasturba's writings because Kasturba left virtually nothing behind. So we have Kasturba as mediated by Gandhi, Kasturba as mediated by Mili, Kasturba as mediated by her son Harilal, who also talks about uh, his mother's difficulties with the father. In letters to his father, he says, you treated my mother badly, A, B, C, D. But it's clear there was, there was something, and Kasturba is partly because of Millie becoming more, uh, you know, and Gandhi certainly, I mean, the, in, and one of the striking things, is, uh, 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 which is quite remarkable, which I discovered in my book, and it was a young friend who pointed out why it was remarkable, is that it is last civil disobedience, civil disobedience movement in 1913, which is partly against a marriage law which allows only marriages under Christian rights to be solemnized. So all the Hindus and Muslims in South Africa are basically, all their marriages are illegitimate by law. Kasturba and several women, including a Muslim woman, caught arrest. And partly this is, of course, living with Mili, partly it's all, all of that. Uh, partly, but what is striking about it uh, is that this is really radical. It's also partly influenced about Gandhi's Gandhi sees of the suffragettes in London. But what is really radical about it is in the Indian context, by 1913, which is when Kasturba caught arrest, along with several other women, uh, no Indian woman, so far as I know, has gone to jail in India. You know, uh, the anti-colonial movement, the armed struggle, the Swadeshi movement is all men. Women, are, you may have a really elite woman like Sarojini Naidu uh, speaking in English to a women's gathering. But women courting arrest is inconceivable because it's such a high bound patriarchal, conservative society. For your wife or your daughter or your sister... Firstly, they're not allowed to meet strange men. You know, they can't go into a, a mixed gathering. Often they can't go to university, they can't go to clubs. They can't. And to go and into jail and be treated and be given food by a male jailer of a different caste or a different religion is impossible. So it, this is very really radical. You know, women courting arrest. Also men court arrest. So white men. So the last struggle, Polak and Gandhi's friend Kallenbach, who's the man whose papers are in Israel, go to jail. And, and Millie, Millie and Sonia support them from outside. And this is a lovely letter from Gandhi to Mili, saying, "I wish you could have gone to jail too, but we want to keep it to you know Indian Indian, Indian women and, uh, and so on." So this is, this is so there are things. Unfortunately, Kasurba's voice is uh, is always refracted to some, somebody else. So this, this is one of the problems in historian. Gandhi and Jinnah. Now again, this is what we would call in Hindi a tippany, a small tidbit, but it's it's uh, it's, it's so intriguing. It's known, uh, Well, yes, here are some known facts. In 1947, India and Pakistan were created. Mm. Gandhi and are acknowledged or whatever, claimed to be the fathers of these nations, India and Pakistan. That's a known fact. No, known to everyone in this room and beyond, right? Uh, known fact number two, known to most specialists. Gandhi and Jinnah first heard of Gandhi in 1908 and about uh, the sufferings of the Indians in South Africa and made a brilliant speech along with many other speeches in the imperial assembly supporting the struggle of Indians in South Africa and mentioning Gandhi by name. So this, and there's some connections and Gandhi wrote, uh, Gandhi then comes to India in 1915 and Jinnah's there at the reception. Some of this is known. I found in my book something I believe has not been reported before. In 1897, Jinnah wrote Gandhi two letters. Now how do I know this? There's a log book in that cupboard in the Sabarmati Ashram in Ahmedabad containing letters to Gandhi. It's just, a, you know, it's just his secretary saying letter from so-and-so, letter from Dada Naroji, Naoroji, letter from E.W. Baker who's the English lawyer and so on. Let, two letters from Jinnah. January 1897 and July 1897, that's all. Two letters, contents not known, Gandhi's replies not known. What could this be about? Now, I indulge in this, only a paragraph of speculation, not more. But it's interesting enough. In 1897, Gandhi goes back to India in 1896, to get his family, and to get some lawyers. He tells the Indians, your problems are very uh, complicated. I can't represent all of you. I must get you some more lawyers. He goes back, spends four months in India. He starts a correspondence with a Parsi lawyer called Taliyar Khan, which is there, uh, where he says, will you come and join me? And Taliyar Khan is interested. And he says, Gandhi even says, if you join our household because he's a Parsi. You can have a separate kitchen for your non-vegetarian food and so on. So so they're talking. So Gandhi is interested in getting a lawyer to help him with his practice. In 1896-97, Jinnah is a briefless barrister in Bombay. Exactly what Gandhi was in 1893. He's come back from London. Gandhi wants lawyers to be in partnership with. Gandhi is a Gujarati Hindu. Jinnah is a Gujarati Muslim. There are lots of uh, uh, Gujarati Muslim merchants in Jin- Durban who need legal help. So, speculation. Could it be that Gandhi and Jinnah were thinking of forming a legal partnership in <laughs> Durban in 1897, 50 years before the nation? I'll just leave it at that. i just leave it at that.
0: Because
1: yeah. <laughs> I just leave it at that this is an alternate speculation, which is Gandhi was attacked by a white mob in December 1897. Jinnah is writing him a letter of commiseration. And consolation. But that's January. Why July? I think they, they may be talking about something serious here.
0: <laughs> okay, I think we're going to have to call it to an end now. It's now five past eight. When, uh, when Ram Guha was our Philip Ramon pre- professor, everybody who worked in ideas at the time said, could we have more people like Ram Guha, please? And he turned out to be a great Philip Ramon professor as he Indeed, turned out to be a, another great lecturer this evening. He said, of, he said of Gandhi that Gandhi was not a great speaker or orator. The last thing you can say of Ram Guha is that he's not a great speaker or an orator. Uh, I'd like to thank you all for all of your interesting questions. Uh, I'd like to thank our speaker this evening for his great speech, and I'd like to recommend to you this particular book. If you want to go and buy it, he will be up on the stage to sign it. Thank you very much. I wanted to say thank you. So <clears>
2: thank <throat> you.